Hello, this is Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. We're going to have a series of fun guests. We're going to chew the fat and we're going to dish the dirt and we're going to bring you the best and the smartest people I can find. Make sure you tell your friends. Join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is master political strategist Paul Bagala. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors in our recent episodes, show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I did not expect to say the following sentence. On the default debt ceiling measure, Joe Biden was a really good negotiator and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was a responsible leader. Now, it, it was reckless to use the debt ceiling, which covers previously incurred obligations and does risk the full faith and credit of the United States, as blackmail, which is what House Republicans did. But that final deal, which after one or two more fits and starts, I expect to clear Congress by the middle of next week, carries an important recommendation. It doesn't do much harm. And the Democratic negotiators, Yolanda Young, the OMB director, earlier 14 years in the House Appropriations Committee, where she won bipartisan uh, respect, and Biden confidant Steve Reschetti and their their legislative chief legislative director all knew their stuff and they played their cards well. And likewise, McCarthy's delegates, Congressman Graves and McHenry, both bona fide conservatives who didn't want to blow up the place and the U.S. economy. So they ended up, I think, in the given the circumstances we're in now, particularly with that crazy House conference, Republican conference, they ended up with a pretty good deal. There are a couple of bad provisions, the work requirements for people on welfare and food stamps uh, we've seen before in states like Arkansas. They really don't work. But, but that could have been worse. Biden wisely refused to allow that requirement for Medicaid. So it was a bad precedent, but it ended up better, certainly, than I expected. Well, um, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I actually was pretty, pretty down about it. And the, the big thing is we, we didn't default on a debt. That would have been catastrophic. And I tell you, you got to give a lot of credit to Bat, East Baton Rouge Parish here. Garrett Gray's a Baton Rougean, uh, as is the OMB directors from uh, Zachary, same place that uh, Doug Williams from and pair her with the U.N. ambassador, Ms. Greenfield, who's from Baker, is to actually the same part of the world. So that this was a this is a good trick for two for prominent Louisiana. black women. Two prominent black women, yes. That are, are, are both in the well, I guess the OMB directors not in the cabinet. I'm not sure. Maybe they are now. Who knows what's in the cabinet? But well, she's certainly really, in the cabinet rank. Whether right. She's oh, in yeah. The, yeah. But, but a really talented person. Uh, it, it pointed out to me this morning. You know, 14 years on the appropriation committee. They all know each other. She knew. You know, it it pays to put somebody in a place that knows something. That everybody's looking for, you know, the right kind of mix and everything else. You know, when when you're the OMB director and you're negotiating and and you, you got to know something. And I think Garrett is his dad was a very respected uh, businessman who's an engineer in Baton Rouge. My brother's a contractor, knew him well, and I I don't think that he he was very intent on blowing up the entire U.S. economy. So, uh, you know, there's some good political back and forth. But so far, it looks like it was a decent deal all the way around. Yeah, there's certainly there's things we don't know. There's some money floating around. We're not sure where it's going to go. But that's always the case in a big deal like this. I think you're absolutely right about Graves and Young. And also, Steve Reschetti has been a lobbyist and worked with Biden for years. He he knew what was going on. The head of their legislative division did. And Patrick McHenry from North Carolina is like Graves, a conservative. But he I mean, 
they're they're conservatives of yesteryear almost. Uh, I mean, they want to get conservative things done. They want to stop liberal things from getting done. They don't want to explode. They don't they don't want to destroy and tear down. Right, right. And I, you know, it pains me to say this, but you got to give McCarthy some credit here. Absolutely, I mean, he, he appointed them. Yeah, uh, and you know, let's see what happens. It, may, it wasn't. America's finest hour, but, but you know, we, we got through it. And that's that's a big thing. Hey, James, one more thing. Most Democrats, I hope, will vote for this for a couple of reasons. It's the world they live in now. The Republicans won control of the House, which they hadn't, but they did. And you had to come up with some kind of a compromise. This is what would have, I think, ultimately something close to this uh, occurred uh, on the budget. But also the more they carp and complain and say, God, it was awful, it was terrible, the more they just uh, accelerate that mediocre enthusiasm from some Democratic voters. Uh, if you, To vote against this is to, I think, is almost an irresponsible vote because the option is default. You hit on what, to me, for a political person is the critical thing when you talk about mediocre enthusiasm. I, I mean, the president's numbers among blacks are, are tepid. They're like 60%, all right? And among young people, they're, they're downright frigid. It's like 32%. And among Democrats, they're not great. It's like 74%. Trump was always like 90% among Republicans. And of course, what's going to happen is the predictable number of people will come out and say, this hurts us. It was a bad deal. We can't be for this. And casual people can't say that I blame them. Say, well, if the Democrats don't think this is very good for, for, yep. for why should I think it's good? Yep. And that just contributes. And the biggest problem, the biggest political problem right now that the Democrats have, the Republicans will be against you. That no matter what, the, the independents can, you know, they broke for us in 2022 for, you know, not very complicated reasons. But but this is politically, I'm afraid that not only the president not get very much credit for them, if, if anything, it could hurt him slightly. Yeah, and I can hear the right. rejoinder from some of the left now. Well, so you're asking me to vote for a measure that I that I don't like. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to vote yeah, for a measure that's that far from perfect. Yeah. But look at what the alternative is. And if you, you know, you can't run around and saying, boy, we could have gotten a better deal. You got the best deal you could possibly get given the circumstances. Yeah, it, but then you got the, the, the digital director saying, you know, if, if you vote against this, we think we can raise another one. Point two million dollars on. I mean, it, 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 the money and the overnights and the visibility and, and the instant reaction. It, it, you can't run a government like that, right. and that's the way this government is being run by, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's overnight digital fundraising or some, you know. Corey Bush's overnight digital fundraising. It's it's just it's it's a bad way to do business, but it's way, it's where we are now. Well, that's why Ron DeSantis came out strongly against this thing. He's going to raise money from it. He's going to try to pressure Trump. Absolutely. Uh, and he figures he doesn't lose anything with the base. He doesn't give a damn yeah. about what the hell it does to the economy. But uh, he, he immediately came out against it. I'll clean up. I, Corey, Marjorie Taylor Greene is like a, a stupid, I think, in some ways, evil person. I think Corey Bush is naive. I don't mean to equate the, right. the two. Right. But right. make right. that case. I agree. Well, Okay. Uh, so, so James, a, a little bit more good news about the administration than we've been uh, saying for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, 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 you may well be right. Biden may not get any credit, could even get hurt a little bit. But he does deserve some credit on this. And I think if Democrats are smart, uh, it's not going to be a game changer by any means. But I think, you know, at least uh, no, no harm was done. Yeah. You know, the average guy, it's just hard to see. Well, they kept the government from defaulting. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. I, yeah. I, he should. All right. In, 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 in any world, he should. He was skillfully he appointed the right people. Uh, you know, the case he makes is that he's wise and experienced, and this was certainly evidence of that. But I don't think it's – I don't think people are going to give him very much credit for this because – they assume that's what you're supposed to do. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right.
Okay, James, our guest is the maestro of politics, Paul Begala, the pride and joy of Fort Bend County and the Texas Longhorns. <laughs> you know, Paul, I remember not that long ago talking to you about a changing Texas. Paul, they are nuttier than ever. I mean, culminating <laughs> this week with the impeachment by the Republican State House of Attorney General Ken Paxton under indictment for state indictment for years and under in federal investigation for bribery charges brought by his own staff. This looks like a third world place. It, it really is astonishing. Uh, first, thanks for having me back on. Love the podcast. It's, it's just my favorite. Um, it, this is amazing that, you know, Republicans, it's been a one party state. Democrats haven't won a single statewide election in 28 years. Not one. And we elect everybody statewide in Texas, the ag commissioner and the railroad commissioner, nothing. And but you're seeing one party rule turn on itself. Uh, the, the attorney general uh, has been accused of serious wrongdoing many times now. He's been under indictment for years uh, and that's still unresolved. The Justice Department is grinding slowly along on that. And, and, and maybe he's perfectly innocent. I don't know. But he did have then after that. This is an indictment. The first indictment was for fraud. He is alleged to have defrauded a he was then a member of the legislature. He's alleged to have defrauded a fellow member of the legislature on an investment deal. He under indictment for that. He's fighting that. Meanwhile, he's, he becomes attorney general, gets elected. His top eight aides, all political appointees, all Trumpy, you know, Ken Paxton is his name. And Ken is the most Trumpy attorney general in America, more more pro Trump than Trump's attorney general, William Barr. <laughs> and yet. His top eight aides, all Trumpy Republicans, resign en masse and accuse him of uh, really terrible uh, criminal wrongdoing, uh, which uh, has led to this impeachment. Here's why. They also allege that they were punished as whistleblowers. So under the whistleblower statute, they sued uh, Paxton, these these uh, uh, dissident employees. Paxton settled with them for three point three million dollars. And then he turned to the legislature and said, Taxpayers of Texas should pay this $3.3 million. So the Speaker of the House and the members of the legislature said, look, we're the, you want the check, we have to investigate this. If you want $3.3 million of taxpayer money. So he, so he brought it on. He brought yeah. it on himself through his own uh, stupidity or avarice or whatever by trying to make the taxpayers pay for his alleged wrongdoing okay. for but his Paul, legal settlement. Paul, voters knew how shady Paxton has been. It's been out there, as you say, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, he brought that crazy lawsuit trying to overturn the presidential election in other states, uh, you know, right. Wisconsin and Georgia. In, in Pennsylvania, and right. Right. And, and yet he easily beat a supposedly competitive primary challenger, George P. Bush, and walks right. away in the general. I, I mean, this is shades of Pa Ferguson. Uh, well, <laughs> to, to, to reach back in my Texas history. Yeah. You know, this is probably politically his best defense is that people knew about this and they voted for me anyway. Yeah. Um, that's not a legal defense. The problem with that is in the impeachment, the House of Representatives alleges that part of this settlement, part of his activities has had been to suppress the information. Uh, about these allegations to keep it from the voters. That's what the House is alleging. And I will note that the Republicans dominate the House. They voted to impeach him 121 to 23. All eight members of his home county delegation, all Republicans from Collin County, which is one of the has been one of the Republican strongholds in that state, all eight of them in the House voted to impeach him. So th th this is really an overwhelming uh, House vote, overwhelming rejection, overwhelming indictment. Now goes the Senate, where his home county senator is his wife, Angela. Well, I want to get into that because <laughs> I am going through some withdrawals uh, with the end of the HBO series Succession, yeah. modeled after the, the cutthroating Murdochs. But I can see a sequel down there in Austin where the Texas Senate takes up the Paxton impeachment. And one of the offenses involves an acknowledged extramarital affair. Right. So the 31 said this is my dream you know, scenario, 31 senators in that Senate. It's 20 to 10 for <laughs> conviction. And the final right. vote is Angela Paxton, the wife. She shouldn't vote, but she probably will. The vote of the impeached attorney general. And I'll tell you something. If she votes to acquit it, just imagine what she could squeeze out of that son of a bitch. 
<laughs> oh, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, the allegation is not simply an affair because that's not impeachable, as we well know, but that he that Paxton benefited a, a real estate developer who was helping out the woman with whom Paxton right. was alleged to have had an affair. So, it, it, look, should the should Senator Paxton, the, the spouse of the Attorney General, recuse herself? I, I, it's kind of one of the oldest provisions of law is you shouldn't be a judge in your own case. This is very close to her own case. Uh, there's another member of the Senate named in the impeachment, though. Uh, they allege that this senator uh, filed a straw request for an opinion. Like a lot of states, attorney general's opinion has force of law in Texas. It's an advisory opinion, but it has force of law. And um, the allegation is this state senator, not his wife, was set up to ask a very specific question to the attorney general so he could issue a ruling favorable to this real estate uh, in, investor who is he, uh, Paxton is alleged to have helped. It's just a total mess, though. It's total mess. But it is really striking that the House, so Republican, voted so overwhelmingly to indict him. So now uh, to impeach him. Now it'll go so to I'm trial. I'm going to turn it over to James, but, yeah. but let me ask you finally. Will he be convicted? It, 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 I don't know. It's the honest answer. It takes 21 out of 31 senators. Uh, and it's an overwhelmingly Republican state Senate. Uh, the trial is likely to be at the end of the summer, which will give Paxton plenty of time to mount a defense, which is his right. Uh, very belatedly, Donald Trump weighed in. Trump, obviously very popular among Texas Republicans. He weighed in and said, I'm going to come after anybody who votes to impeach him. And 121 did anyway. So uh, I, it's interesting that Paxton's uh, efforts uh, to enlist Mr. Trump have, have failed. James. So, so, Paul, you said something up, up, up on striking that in Texas, the attorney general's opinion has to force a law. That is uncommon, I think. I, I know it, in the U.S. it does not, and I know in Louisiana it doesn't. But is that is that a kind of unique provision of Texas law? The, the truth is I don't know. I, I have a right. Texas law degree, so I just thought it was commonplace. Yeah, uh, right. But, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution is very clear. The Supreme Court cannot issue advisory opinions. Right. Or, or And I think that's wise because it would clog up the courts. Right. Um, but in Texas, you can ask if you're if you had a state agency, if you're a member of the legislature, that's right, not right. you and I can't do it. But but, you know, important players in Texas government can go to the attorney general and say, if I do this, is this legal? Right. And that has huge uh, force of law behind it. And, and it's I, I don't know. I thought it was very common in a lot of states. It's been actually a pretty useful thing for, for state agencies. I think in, in, in Louisiana, you can get the advisor opinion, but it doesn't mean it. It, it. You can use it to protect it, but a judge could overthrow it. It would just say, no, that's wrong. It doesn't have any force law. But anyway, we're, we're, we're in the weeds here now. But again, the allegation is he abused that power right. to help a so, wealthy donor. So the last – in the Senate race 2018, I think we came within yeah. under three three points of winning. Yeah. Oh, oh and, by the way, can I retract well, – not retract, rewind sure. one thing, though. Sure. Not this most recent re-election, but Paxton's re-election before that. He won uh, uh, against a friend of mine. I mean, my son Billy was working for him, Justin Nelson. Justin right. Nelson, don't cry for him. He lost the race for attorney general. He wound up as lead counsel for Dominion v. Fox, winning one of the biggest lawsuits and most important lawsuits in modern American history. Uh, so I think Justin Nelson actually came out a bigger winner, even though he came in second in the election. Yeah, I think I'll campaign for him. I went to some uh, you did. beer yes. party in Austin. Uh, I actually you know. interviewed him for a column I wrote about Texas that year. He's a, a former brilliant guy, lawyer. too. Absolutely. Yeah. A brilliant, yeah. brilliant guy. Uh, and and just carved up Fox uh, and, and uh, uh, to the delight of many of us. So, so in the election of 2018, uh, Beto Rook burst on the scene, got came within, I don't know, two and a half points or three yeah. points of beating Cruz. So here we come six years later. Cruz is def definitely less popular now than before. The, the demographic did not stop shifting in Texas, although it was a horrifically disappointing uh, 2020 election in Texas. Uh, and, you know, talk about the Democratic primary and what it would take for – because that, that's one of our best – believe it or not, that's as good a chance as we got for a pickup in the year 2024. So talk a little bit about what you see in the Texas Senate race and how, yeah. how could this unfold on favorable terms. The, the, the dream candidate for Democrats is Colin Allred. He's a congressman from North Dallas. He's George W. Bush's congressman 
or it was last time I looked at the uh, district. Uh, terrific they, have a, they, guy. they have a pretty good relationship, too, as a matter of fact. Yes. Yeah. Colin knocked on his door and said, Mr. President, I'm here to, to serve you in any way. I mean, Colin has been a model, I think, uh, a congressman, right? grassroots oriented, really uh, it, it now become very popular in, in a, what used to be a very Republican district. Um, he's got a perfect profile to run statewide, uh, you know, raised by a heroic single mom who I believe was a teacher joined the boys club and got into athletics, winds up going to Baylor on a scholarship, plays football for Baylor. Then he makes it, he's undersized, but he's all Southwest conference. He makes it in the NFL, plays for two NFL teams. Uh, and then after that goes to law school, becomes a, a, a civil rights lawyer. He's a really remarkably uh, successful guy. He's, he's, I think just got the right profile. I talked to him last week and he said that, look, here's my message how I got here. And I think one of the values I would bring to the Senate would be faith, family, and football. <laughs> That's pretty good in Texas and anywhere. Um, he, he will possibly probably likely have a primary opponent, which I think is unwise. Uh, Rolando Gutierrez, who's a good guy. He's the state center from Uvalde and other parts of that part of Texas. But so he is clearly heartbroken by the massacre at, in his hometown uh, and has pushed hard for gun safety laws and uh, is clearly talking about making a Senate challenge uh, in the primary. It, it, what frustrates me is when you have a state where your party hasn't won a single statewide election in 28 years, it's not a good time to divide the party. Uh, Cruz will likely have no primary opponent. There was a poll out last week from University of Texas, Tyler, and it showed Cruz is favorable of 42. Greg Abbott's at 49. But Cruz is favorable of 42. He's a negative of 50. Um, this is a beatable guy. And in fact, in the, the trial heat, Colin is not well known yet in Texas. And yet he's only trailing by five. Uh, Beto, of course, got to be very, very well known and only lost by 2.75. So Colin starts out this race only five points down against uh, a, a guy that there's not much more, I think, that people are going to hear about Ted Cruz. He says, Boy, I really do like that fellow. There's a lot they're going to learn about Colin Allred that they're going to love. You're feeling, you're feeling decent about our shot here. It just, we couldn't get, you know, this is the thing, though. We couldn't get a better candidate than Colin Allred, if you ask me. Of course, I felt that way about Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. I felt that way about Val so Demings in Florida. I yeah. felt that way about Tim Ryan in Ohio. Democrats have really, really good candidates. And in some of those places, I think, frankly, the party let them down. Um, and I think, I think Justice Beasley is, is one of them. I think Tim, Tim Ryan's uh, another um, Val Demings. So I really want to see the National Party step up for Colin Allard. I know Texas is not a swing state in a presidential election, but it really could be. I mean, t t Ted Cruz, you know, Al Franken famously said, I like Ted Cruz better than any of my colleagues in the Senate do. And I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> and you, remember, and, you remember then that, that Supreme Court vacancy, you know, and Barack Obama said I could appoint Cruz and there'd be eight more vacancies. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Ted, you know, this may be running out on him. And I, I, seriously, if I were advising Ted Cruz, I'd say you get a really watch he, the usual anti-woke baloney. It's not going to work against Colin Allred. Okay? He is he is a, the real deal, you know, faith, family and football. Is, is something that Ted Cruz is going to have a hard time uh, attacking. The Cancun but. comment. Uh, <laughs> and and Louis, we call it the 5S, fam, faith, family, football, food, and fixing flats. There's <laughs> 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 another one, but I'm not going to say it even. I'm not going to say it. Well, yeah, yeah, please don't. don't fashionable. Yeah. I can't say And I saw him at the beginning. But actually, when he was first recruited to run for the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi asked me to go down there meet with his staff and campaign with them a little bit. My son, Patrick, and I went down there, absolutely fell in love with him. Um, so I have huge personal investment. My niece, Grace, worked for him, Grace Begala, uh, the most beautiful little SMU sorority girl, now graduate, who also this last season uh, shot a deer in South Texas with my brother and me. Oh, so I'm she sorry just, to hear that, Paul. She's all I'm Texan, so sorry man. to hear that. And she, <laughs> she loves Colin. She worked for him, said he was a great boss. And uh, he's really a beloved congressman there. So he's, I think, the Democrats' best shot. Yeah, he is a guest on the show. is a good friend of mine. And Al and I are both highly, highly, highly impressed with Colin Alred and wishing him the best. So, that's one of your favorite sporting events is, is, is coming up. And, you know, Texas and LSU have kind of been 
main, you know, go quite a bit to the College World Series. Rake Forrest is currently Al's team, which currently number one in the country and is the betting favorite to win it. Uh, what, what should Al look forward to uh, as his team begins this sort of journey to try to get to Omaha? It's the most. James, James, let me just say to Paul, you know, Carvel and I have a wonderful relationship on this program. We occasionally disagree and it doesn't much matter. However, when the two favored teams get to Omaha, LSU Mm -hmm. and Texas, there's going to be more tension than you can imagine. We may need a UT guy to mediate. Let me tell you, don't don't assume it. I'm not assuming we get there and it it, it, it ain't easy to get there. Let me tell you. Once you get there, it gets harder. But what do you the like? Wake, about, what, you, I love you Wake. Going, They're not a perennial powerhouse like Texas or LSU, but they have they have been there and they have won it all. This is in the fifties, but they 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 have a ring. That was before you were born, Paul Begala. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the deal: they the, Wake Forest might have the best story in college baseball, the best coach, the most compelling. You know, just Al. You want to tell everybody about uh, Coach Water Walter and uh, what he did about ten years ago. 10 or 12 years ago, he had a player named Kevin Jordan, right. a baseball player. Kevin got sick as a dog, couldn't find out what was wrong. Finally, it turned out he needed a kidney transplant. The family, the Kevin's family didn't match up to give a, a, a kidney right. to him. Right. So Coach right. Walter takes the right. test, qualifies, and gives his player gives the kidney. his right. kidney. Oh, man, you can, this is astonishing. This is like, what a... By, by the way, I will say, uh, Coach Walter is a Georgetown guy. He is a, 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 a trained by the Jesuits and a man for others. I'm such a fan of him. And they asked him, said, well, your player is black and you're white. How do you know it'll match? He said, we have the same blood. We all do. Isn't that beautiful? James, yeah. he, you're gonna, he's James, just amazing. If, if guy. LSU plays against him, you're going to cheer against this guy? <laughs> he's I'm amazing. Sorry. If LSU played against you know, St. Francis of Assisi. I, I, I want St. Francis of Assisi to catch the clap and die. <laughs> no, but Paul, you're right. It's an amazing story. And you're He's right. An they did guy. win once, but they won. It was, it was over. It was 67 years ago, 68 wow. years ago. And, and this is, and they have not been, been a very good baseball uh, team for a long time, but he's put this together. And I'll tell you one thing he's got, he's got a fabulous pitching staff. And, uh, yeah. you know, you see Rhett Louder, the big right-hander they have. I, I mean, think he, he may be the only the pitcher second better than Paul Skeens. He might be better LSU. than Paul He might be they, better than Paul Skeens. He's really, really good. It, it, here's the ERA is way below two. It's like 1.6 or something. Uh, yep. Louders. The problem out, and this is my worry about Texas, who not even hosting a regional is uh, oh my and i'm going no matter what i go almost every year the Begala boys come we just saw it, it's a family it's always fourth of, i mean a, a father's day weekend the first weekend of college world series so we always go um it's all about pitching depth yeah not height yeah and and there's not a better pitcher than louder and skeins at, at james's school and yours but it's about how deep your bullpen goes you got to play a lot of games man regional which is double elimination super regional double elimination Omaha, which is double elimination until you get to the final two, and then it's two out of three. So, I mean, it's a long, long haul. It takes a lot of arms. Well, we got a good, we got a good number two and number three starter. We got one or two good uh, bullpen relievers, but you may need more than that. You said, look, it skipped. In the 90s, you know, we had Ben McDonald. Remember, we went to the Orioles, and they pitched him. Oh, God. And I, I think it, it, they skinned. And you're not going to be able to pitch these kids, these really good pitchers. That Their agents are, are the coach, or they'll say, Coach, I don't, I'm not going I'm throwing more than 80 pitches today. And I don't blame them. I, I mean, it's not like McDonald's, you go, I think McDonald, I should have looked it up, James. I think McDonald won three games in one college world series. He might have. I mean, such and, a, he was a secretary. He was just way, unstoppable. He, he is generally the commentator on ESPN and yeah. he is very good. He is. He's a very good, he's a very good colleague. We, and one thing that we do is, I mean, we have uh, Marcus Spears and, and uh, Booger McFarlane on ESPN. Yeah. They're very good analysts. I mean, they're very colorful. And yeah. of course, Shaq is a big, you know, well, what kind Booger of commentator you? screen too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Booger's I mean, a large I mean, human being. I, I don't think any college sports team has more prominent commentators than we do but but if well yeah, duke does um, i mean every time you turn around there's another well, dookie on jay billis there's nobody well, better than jay billis yeah okay right, you know, seriously. I, I, mean, I, I, I don't know i know you don't like duke but jay I, I, I don't know, jay I'm fine. I, I just think spears and and 
you know, Booger and, and Shaq, but that, I'm not going to argue that. They, they have a, a, a lot of people there. I'm arguing um, for my wife, Paul. I understand. It's nice <laughs> not, not a distraction. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, I think the, the only bad news I'd say, Al, is I think in this century, the number one seed is won one time. Uh, you know, I don't know if it means anything, but. <laughs> well, I was counting on, you know, I was counting on this being a year in which records were broken. No team had ever been 0-3 right. behind in the NBA and going yeah. on to win. And then oh, the other night, guess what? No team has ever been 0-3 <laughs> behind and going yeah, on that to win. win. So, well, Wake well, opens yeah. up against George Mason, okay, which right. is like the easiest win with the exception of LSU taking on Tulane, James, which has all of 19 wins this year. They got like 42 yeah. losses and they somehow right. stumbled into it. Well, so no, you guys both have passes on well, Paul, I would remind you that maybe once or twice this year, Oakland's going to beat the Dodgers right. uh, or Kansas City or the Rockies are going to beat, uh, you know, somebody good. So but I think it, baseball, I think, you know, if you have a basketball or football game where you have a George Mason against a Wake Forest or Tulane against uh, uh, LSU, it's 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 gone. It's unwinnable. Baseball, you're a heavy underdog, but you got a shot. Just remember, Tulane beat Southern Cal in the Cotton Bowl where they had about a 0.05% chance to win the game. Yeah. I, 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 and by the way, and they're hot coming into the tournament. We're cold. Mm-hmm. We're 7-7 seven seven our last 14 games. Yeah. Right? Over the course of the season, LSU's the can, best can team. Can anybody say Coastal Carolina, who won it all like in 2015? Yeah. This is a weird event, man. This is not the blue well, blood. Miss, not Ole Miss won it all last year, and they're not even back. That's how right. hard it is to get to Omaha. It, right, um, they, 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 they were not that good we'll in the regular season. Right, well, I'm, I'm just saying now, the, 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 the Blue Buds do okay, but it's not like it, it, anybody can win this thing. It, it's well, the most wide open It's the most fun thing, though. It's yeah. always in Omaha. used to be at Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium. Now they have this nice, beautiful new TD Ameritrade. But, you know, it's just such a great event. And you can walk from the stadium across the river into Council Bluffs, Iowa, why would you do that? Because you're crossing the Bob Carey footbridge, <laughs> named for the War Hero Medal of Honor recipient uh, from Nebraska, who was governor and senator there. It's just a great. It's a great town. It's it's no. Omaha is one of my favorites. It really is. Well, watching college baseball, which I rarely do, uh, you know, was really. I mean, my friend Curtis Wilkie down in Mississippi says I never oh, missed yeah. a home game, and I, I remember this. But twenty five years ago, Tim Duncan could have been the number one draft choice for three years in a row and decided to stay in college. And someone said, "Why'd you do it?" He said, "Because I like what I'm doing." He said, "I get to go to a baseball game, <laughs> you know." And that's man, I, I I wish I lived on a campus during baseball season, during basketball season too. But it is the most fun. Uh, when I was a student, believe me, I, I missed more classes than I did baseball games. Of course, we had this old pitcher named Roger Clemens uh, when oh, I was in God. college. We had Calvin oh. Schiraldi. We had Spike Owen. We had we had uh, just like won the College World Series my senior year. I mean, it's just great. So I became that's when I got the bug, and I just love it. And by yeah. the way, when LSU back at the old Johnny Rosenblatt James, I went and and the LSU fans started a fire in the parking lot put a big Dutch oven on, they were making gumbo. And I hung out with the LSU fans. Cause I mean, who else? I mean, Texans don't start a fire in a parking lot and start cooking gumbo. Well, let me tell no, you, no, they, we, we, they we interviews with the bartenders in Omaha. Uh-huh. One time LSU and UL went, shit, they broke every record they could imagine. <laughs> hey, I, I promise you, the bartenders in Omaha are pulling for LSU harder than uh, I am. All right. <laughs> but when they, wait for us, I got news for you, Albert. Think I'll drink us. He might outplay us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even come. sure. I'm not even sure any longer we can outpray you. But uh, <laughs> in any event, Paul, Paul Bagala, you have been a Thank fabulous you. guest. There's no one we enjoy having on this show more than you. Uh, I, I'm still waiting for when the Lone Star State starts to change politically. It's coming, uh, Colin Allred. It's coming. You watch right. my man, Colin. That's that. As James said, that is the big one. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Al. Thanks, James. Now, the third in our new series called Screw the Voter. Uh, This is a good one, James. One of the reasons that practically every study shows 
that we have honest and reasonably efficient elections in America is the hundreds of thousands of dedicated election workers who work and supervise the polls. But, uh, you know, this is a, a, a just a really disturbing study that according to the nonpartisan Brennan Center and a third survey of more than 10,000 of these poll workers, the Trump thugs and election deniers are threatening them as they peddle their lies about voting fraud. Almost a third of election workers in this survey, it was a survey of 10,000, James, so it was good size. Uh, almost a third say they've been harassed or abused. 45% say they're concerned about their safety or that of their colleagues. 22% say they know at least one election official who, because of these threats has quit for any future elections. You know, this is, this is a big deal. Polling places will be understaffed in 2024, and that's a threat to democracy. More federal resources and protections are urgently needed. And I also would urge everyone out there, James, to read a recent Washington Post piece by Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a terrific reporter who was a guest uh, on our program. She profiled the former Republican chair of the Maricopa County, Arizona uh, Elections uh, Board named Bill Gates. And after he refused to buckle under false charges of election fraud, he was vilified, abused, labeled a traitor who should be shot and hung by the election deniers. He and his family were threatened at their home. Their children were terrified after threats, and they even had to temporarily move. Gates went into therapy, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, to repeat, James, there are more than a few violent-prone election deniers egged on by Trump. And I'll tell you, I really think this is a real threat to the American ideal of free and fair elections. Well, it's impossible to disagree with you. It's, it's possible, impossible to, to say the, the depths of how, how terrible and awful this is. I mean, if there's... I don't know. You know, if the last line of defense we have in democracy are elections and, and you know, the number of people that work on election day is, is just staggered. And, it, it, and the whole system depends on, you know, Miss Mabel showing up at the precinct to right. record the votes. I mean, that, and, and to be attacking these people, I, Congress should pass a, a, a enhanced penalty for harassing or interfering with an election worker. It should be a mandatory seven-year sentence without parole. I mean, you, you got to come in and you can't fool around with these people. They are dangerous to the United States. They're massively unpatriotic. And, you know, we have enhanced penalties for hate crimes. We have enhanced penalties for everything else. And they have to put a special justice, you know, pass a law and put a special Justice Department strike force and then lock some of these goddamn people up. You think the Trump contingent would allow that, James? I think they like this. Well, you know, there's more than just a Trump contingent in Congress. And, and by the way, if they don't pass it, run on it. Right. I don't think the average swing voter or, or independent voter much likes beating up election officials. I agree. You know, sometimes... If you can't get it right now, introduce it and run on it. You know, there's two there's women in, in, in Georgia in the uh, January 6th commission. I apologize. I can't remember her name, but it was a, oh, she was a young black uh, woman and her mother. It just ruined their lives for doing right. nothing. They had to move. They had to move. They had to move. And, and put seven years, no parole, no nothing. No probation. Serve every day of seven years. And then you'll stop this shit. You'll stop it. Make it a federal crime. Hire uh, 200 assistant U.S. attorneys, a whole batch of FBI agents, and put an end to this crap and right now. Yep. Oh, I wish it could happen. Uh, you know, right. but you're right. It, it if it can't right. happen, you ought to make an issue of it. Right. You know, you and introduce the bill. <laughs> right. Make them vote. Make them vote. Yep. I agree. Now, James, for the outrage of the week. Remember Tara Reid? During the 2020 campaign, she accused Joe Biden, when he was a senator, of sexually molesting her in the hallways of the Russell Senate office building. 
It was demonstrably bogus, as PBS's Lisa Desjardins showed, showed in a camera walk around those hallways where there's no place to hide. So any sexual assault would have had to have taken place in full view of staffers, senators, and tourists who walked those halls. It was clearly a totally phony story from the beginning. But this year, House Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Goetz, two of the peas in that lunatic pod, vowed to bring Reed before their committee to vent those charges. Well, they're going to have to boost their travel budget, James, because Tara Reed this week defected to Russia, greeted by a Russian agent and Putin crony. And uh, maybe Green and, and, and Getz, the two junior varsity inspector Clouseaus, they may want to investigate the role Russia might have played in those fabricated charges three years ago. I don't think so, James. So this is like, and i got to say this, you were very skeptical of this from the get-go. You did reporting on it. I suspect you probably had something to do in dropping a suggestion on the PBS thing that showed that it was impossible. But but if we don't have, and some people in the press did very well in this, we're sort of skeptical. Others, not so. Right. And if they, if we don't have an accounting, you know, if, if somebody, you know, a Jim Fowler's type or, or some gray beard doesn't come in and, and dissect this and see what went right, what went wrong, we're just going to repeat the same thing again. And, and you know, a problem that we have in the country, I, I, I very much believe in a free press and everything. But the reason that trust in, in a lot of the, the corporate media lanes, whatever they call it, I have no fucking idea, is they don't hold themselves accountable sufficiently enough. And, you know, and I, I remember people saying you always believe the woman. No, you always believe the evidence. I mean, there's no... It's, I'm, I think it's at some level sexist to say that a, a woman can't lie. Of course they can lie. Like they're like any other human being. Now, generally, when they make these charges, they, they, I will say that they tend to be more right than wrong. But, but this was obviously every freaking red flag in the world went up on this. Everyone. And, you know, some people ran with this and treated it like it was like a real deal. And, of course, this woman is pathetic and, you know, has got any number of problems and she's in Russia now. And, of course, does anyone really think she wasn't being paid by the Russians to do this? I don't, I don't have proof of it. But, boy, I'll tell you what, if I was investigating this, that'd be the first place I'd look. But it, it, it ex- hopefully people live and learn and somebody will do an after action report and say, you know, some people got this very right and some people got it very wrong. And we, we got to name names here. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. You, you just got to you, you just can't, you know, you go through these things and everybody goes, oh, my God, you know, the, the emails come to mind. And then, it, oh, well, it wasn't anything. We'll just move on to the next thing. Well, th- then people don't believe you. You like to what's the. uh but the little boy that cried wolf. And that's, that's you know, a timeless piece of literature, uh, observation. And you you, you got to be careful. And when you cry wolf and there's no wolf, you, you got to be pointed out and exposed. You're absolutely right, James. And um, I, I tell you why I knew this story was phony in the beginning. I covered the Congress for 10 years for the Wall Street Journal. Right. And over in the House, they have the speaker's lobby and all the members congregate there. And it's just a it's a marvelous place for a reporter. You can get to see almost everybody. There's nothing quite like that in the Senate. So I used to walk the hallways of Russell and Dirksen and Hart because you'd run into staffers, you'd run into senators. It was really a great way to report. And when you walk those hallways, you realize that there, there, there weren't hiding places there. There wasn't a place to say, come on here and do something private. And she charged that he did this in the hallways, which I knew was impossible. And reporters who were reporting on that story should have done what Lisa Desjardins did. They should have walked those hallways and they would have known the story was a hoax. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll. Very uh, happily and proudly to give you credit. You you were skeptical of this from the start, and, you, you know, you covered it. You'd been there. And, of course, they interviewed, I don't know, 70 different women at work with Biden. I mean, it's never happened like this before. Right. It just every, – everything in the world. It, it It's like the Ohio State wrestling locker room. 
Okay, like, like oh, Jim Jordan didn't know him, please. So yeah. my outrageous, and I, I don't know why I still care, but I do, is an incident happened, and I got this off of Microsoft News, which I, I assume is not going to make itself liable because it's a big country, and there are some nuns, some Carmelite nuns in it that they wear sandals, not shoes. The nuns sued Bishop Michael Olson, the in the Fort Worth Diocese of one million, alleged Olson invaded their property when he showed up in their monastery in April and interrogated them for hours, confiscated their phones and computers, spied on their texts, and made copies of content on these devices. Olson and the Fort Worth Diocese, his statement May 16th, publicly accusing Reverend Mother Superior Teresa Agnes Gerlach of having violated her vows of chastity with the priest. In announcing the ecclesiastical investigation in Catholicism, both nuns and priests played vows back. The diocese did not name the priest alleged in this. Okay, so the story further states that he will not, that they're not entitled to have mass said there. And I did ruin these women's lives. The, 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 the woman was on feeding tubes, and I have no idea, but I was a Catholic educated. I'm, I'm hardly Gary Wills, but there is nothing that I know in Catholic doctrine or Catholic theology that says, you know, assume that these women were sinners. And I, I don't know. I'm not willing to assume that. Th those are the people that really need the mass. The Pope should go from Rome to Fort Worth and say mass for these people. He said that, you know, the, the, the church is a field hospital for the spiritually wounded. It's unbelievable. So in, I'm going to shock everybody. It so happens that these nuns own 72 acres in Arlington, Texas, right on the Trinity River. It has a reported estimated land value of $20 million. Now, you don't think the good bishop is trying to confiscate the Carmelite nuns' property. That would never cross your mind, now would it? Of course it would. Of course it would. When they put $57 million in the cemetery fund in Milwaukee to not pay judgments of these young altar boys that have been raped to do anything. But I don't know why I still care, but unfrickin' believable. Going in there and confiscating people's cell phones and text and ruining lives. And I suspect very strongly, like most things in Holy Mother of the Church, money is at the bottom of it. Well, James, thank goodness you do still care because yeah, uh, that, that is what. just an absolute outrage. <clears throat> you know, there, I, I haven't followed the Texas bishops um, as, as closely as you have it, but this guy in Fort Worth sounds like a, it's just, know, he sounds like a clone of, uh, oh, okay. of Bernard Law and some of those other uh, 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 But I, I don't understand how these, how these people get through, I mean, supposedly you know, he went to Catholic University. I looked up. He was kind of trained. I don't understand the idea that because you're sinning, we're not going to say mass for you. That's all the more reason you're supposed to, according yeah. to the doctrine as issued by Holy Father Pope Francis. It, it's it's unfrickin' believable. And, you know, again, 72 acres right in the middle of the DFW Metroplex, uh, right on the Trinity River. Hmm. It, it sure is an inviting target. And the history of the church is they'll do anything for money. If you don't believe me, see the Vatican Bank. <laughs> Boy, you're absolutely right. <laughs> right. Okay, now for our listener questions, we'll start with Shane in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who notes that last week while answering a question from Andrew in Australia about Democrats needing to consider Southern governors, Shane says that James pushed back a little and suggests that he thinks maybe someone significant is going to jump into the nomination. That's not contradictory. Of the people you see in the Democratic bench, who is somebody significant that might jump in? Oh, God. Uh, Roy Cooper? Uh, J.B. Pritzker? Uh, Mitch Landrew, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Wes Moore, Josh Shapiro, uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, Jay Inslee, uh, Jared Polis, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Gavin Newsom. I don't know. I mean, there's so much staggering talent 
lined up that. I don't know if any of them will. But, you know, Trevor's numbers don't improve by Labor Day. People are going to start getting very itchy here. Right. I'm very itchy. And, and, you know, hopefully this deal in the summer, you know, won't necessitate that. But, but there's real underlying nervousness here. And the thing that people are nervous about, I'll be very blunt, is the Senate. The Senate map is awful. Awful, people. We, in, it, you know, in order to keep the Senate, which is the Supreme Court, by the way, we're going to have to hold places like West Virginia, Ohio, oh, man, uh, Montana, and win in places like Indiana, Texas, and Florida. Don't kid yourself. We need to have a monster year at the presidential level to, to, to hold on to the Senate. James, the only candidate you mentioned that I would take out of that would be Raphael Warnock, not because he's not a great candidate, but you cannot afford to lose a senator. Uh, you know, you, you right. I, I just, I, I, you know, right, yeah, I, I, mean, but, you but I think do that there are a bunch a of really good governors out there. But the, the idea that, that, you know, we don't have was completely reliant on Biden and there's nothing underneath as you and I say this and again hats off to Jackie Combs for pointing it out is the greatest freaking myth in American politics and yeah. the number of informed or so-called smart people I'd say that is stunning to me every day because they're so wrong yes Quaid in Richmond Virginia says given Russian spot as the junior partner in the Russia China relations is Putin left to just accept um, a loss? No matter what happens next, China seems to be a real winner here. I think it's a little more complicated than that, Quaid. I think, um, you know, there's a number of people, a guy named Hal Brands, a very distinguished historian, has written a book that, you know, we may be overrating China. I think China is playing its cards very carefully here. Uh, they like the idea that America resources are going into a war, but they don't want it to go too far. Uh, they basically have contempt for Putin and Russia. He's a that's a marriage of convenience. Uh, they're in the driver's seat as far as being able to talk to both sides right now. The only one of the of, of those big three that can. But uh, let's not overestimate China's China's strength. You know, I, I, I agree with you a, a lot on this. And, and a couple of things. Number one, you know, we, we always focus on our problems and we have so much debt and everything. China has terrible debt problems. And it manifests itself, as, as I understand it, through heavy borrowing by local governments. And some of them are starting to go under. And, you know, I was watching the 60 Minutes thing of the deployed to U.S. Pacific Fleet. China has one aircraft carrier. I, I mean, yes, the, you know, the, the PLA is a huge number of people, but they would not do that well right now in a war with the United States Navy. I, I got news for you. And, and, and they kind of know that. And it, it, I think it's in a lot of people's perceived interests to exaggerate China's strength. Don't get me wrong. They're a very strong country economically, as our, our friend Ambassador Wisner points out. They have a seasoned diplomatic court able to to, to to feel things all around the world. It's certainly a you know a, a adversary, competitor, or somewhere in between. You know, it's it going to take a lot of depth and skillful uh, foreign policy to to get this through this. But but you know, I'm I'm where Jamie Dimon is. No one ever went broke betting on the United States, and the, the you're right. And the, the Russia's exposed itself to be anything but a freaking superpower. And, uh, you know, everybody's waiting for this Ukrainian offense, which seems to me is kind of inevitable. But it's a very, very, very good question. Well, James, these listeners are going to hold you accountable because Liz in Portland, Oregon, Liz says a few episodes ago, James said no labels was evil. Can he explain why he feels that way? The run-up recently had them on for an interview. I don't know what the run-up is. Do I? Is that something I miss? But anyway, whatever it is, they had him on for an interview, and Liz thinks it was seriously intriguing, and she says possibly a legitimate way to get us out of the looming 2024 mess. Educate me, please, James. She does say I love the show. Well, how are they going to get you out of the mess? All right? And you take Wisconsin, all right? Hillary lost by less than Jill Stein got votes. All right. The, the third party in Wisconsin this time 
could have easily cost Biden. He only won by 20,000 votes. So what I don't understand is what is it that they hope to accomplish? So they're going to say, well, you know, we don't like Trump, but but we don't like AOC. So we're going to run somebody and we're going to raise, I I don't know, $500 million or some astronomical sum of which most of that money would go to Democrats anyway. And we're going to get in on a ballot in key states. They're not going to get even enough ballots in states that, that are going to be able to probably get 270 electoral votes. And Al Gore, well, Ralph Nader cost him the election for it. I'm sorry. It's just a blanket assertion that happens to be correct. Jill Stein got more votes than than Hillary lost by in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. How many goddamn times do we see this movie and we somehow or another think it's going to end a different way? It's not. The only thing that they can do is cost Democrats votes. And it's very evident. You know, if you want to, you know, I understand people like more centrists. I'll give you money to Third Way. They're a very good group, right? They're not, they understand. They got different sort of ideas, but they're not going to go in there. And the only thing that can come out of no labels is it helps Donald Trump get reelected to the presidency. And that's the very definition of evil. Amen. Jeff in Marin County, California, says, what can the Democrats do for faith outreach? Uh, We need to connect with people who can connect with pastors and priests and campaign and after electoral wins. We need people who can speak the language of shared faith. We need people in the party who understand that world. You know, Jeff, you're right. Um, The Democratic Party, most Democratic candidates, not all, most are crazy to seed the faith vote. They're not going to win it in most places. They're not going to win evangelicals, for instance. But they can cut into it because they have a better story. There are a number of evangelicals who, while very conservative on issues like abortion, uh, are actually uh, very progressive on issues like climate change. And I think the language is important here. And the delicate balancing act, for Democrats is there is no better issue, as we saw in 2022, for Democrats than the issue of a woman's right uh, to choose in most cases. And they have to be, be, be very delicate on that. But I think that uh, I think language could help. And maybe there's, uh, you know, in, instead of getting 22 percent of the evangelical vote in some place, they get 25 percent or 28 percent. I think a lot of that has to do with style. Well, it, it is uh, uh, the foremost Catholic theologian of my lifetime, uh, I, I believe, is Gary Wills, a, a, a keen observer who famously said the social gospel, comma, which is the gospel, comma. All right. That, that's it. That's, that's what it's all about. If, you, if, if, if someone asks for your shirt, you're supposed to give them your coat. It's pretty simple. And I think they can in, in, in on vast majority of issues, the teachings of the Gospels dovetail with the priorities of the Democratic Party. And you can certainly, when you talk about that, you can, you can talk about how, as Colin Howard is early in the show, what Paul talked about, how he's informed by his faith. And so there's certainly more touchstones for Democrats than they are for, for these right-wing goofy people. But yeah, and you can talk about it in that way, and it's very you know yeah. faith teaches you to be tolerant of your federal person, to have a particular affection to help the unfortunate. I mean, that's all part of the teaching, man. That, that's that that's not part of the teaching. That actually is the teaching. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. the other stuff is just all commentary. James Sharman in La Jolla, California. This oh man, good, this is a good question. When investigating or prosecuting the events of January sixth. Have journalists, representatives, lawyers, et cetera, ever asked the question, what do you think the mob would have done if they had physically gotten their hands on Nancy Pelosi, Mike Pence, AOC, or Ilhan Omar? I know it's hypothetical, but I think it's deserving of a conversation from Trump and anyone who's been questioning about it that day. Well, probably Ohio, I know well. Dawson and Hill County is one of the nicest places I've, I've ever been in the United States. It's, it's gotten... Back when I was in the late 60s and out in the Marine Corps, it's unbelievably crowded now. But but that is a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world. Uh, they would have hung Mike Pence. Right? And, and they would have 
beaten Nancy Pelosi and drug her down the stairs. The, the, it would have been even by AOC or Ilian Omar, no telling what they'd have done. They had every intention of doing that. And you remember that they were trying to get to Mike Pence and would chase him, and that that, that uh, police officers, a uh, black guy, bravely distracted him. Right, they right. were coming after him, and I, I I can't imagine how much Mike Pence and mother hate Donald Trump. I, I mean, he didn't give a shit. You know, he didn't care, and they would have hung him. I, I don't. I, I I don't have any doubt. I, I mean, they were yeah. you know hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. If you I mean, had any doubts about how scary it was, just look at the picture of Josh Hawley, who, after egging the crowd on, was running like a scared jackrabbit down the hall to try to escape. Was he? If you, you know, if you could read one book, I read this book when I was a young man, and I got, I got science in college, and it became very enthralled by it. Uh, it's called The Oxbow Incident by a guy named Walter Van Tilburg oh, I remember Clark, the I think. Yeah. And it's all about the mob. You know, how, and if I, I'm middle I don't know, God knows how many years since I read it, but I was really taken by the fact about how when people become part of a mob that they lose all grounding. And that yeah. was the, the, a mob 100%. And they, they would have they done it. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. They would have freaking done it. Um, it's a good question. Douglas, Douglas in Chicago says, from articles I've read recently, it seems like Trump, the Trump 2024 campaign has more experienced political experts in his inner circle. There are fewer uh, Lewandowski's, Pascalis. Is there something Democrats, is this something Democrats should be concerned about? You know, Douglas, first of all, I'm not that impressed with the people that I've read about or know about uh, uh, that are hanging around there. But it all comes down to Donald Trump. If you think Donald Trump listens to anyone, uh, yeah, you're wrong. He doesn't. I mean, he won in 2020 or 16, rather. Admittedly, the Russians helped him. Uh, but Kellyanne Conway was the campaign manager. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think the Trump campaign will be anything different than what it was in the past. What you see is what you get. Uh, it's going to be spewing evil and uh, I don't think it matters a whole lot who's the campaign manager is James I, I concur a hundred percent that and and it it, it, it uh, he's gonna do what he wants to do right it, and it, 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 it's gonna what he does is gonna be better which is really kind of funny he hasn't weighed in on this default deal he has not it, it, which is which is kind of strange the other thing is DeSantis you know, is baiting him too and he's got a lot of look. He's got financial problems, and he probably figured out that a default would really screw him up. All right, because he's some way. Whatever he does, it's not an altruistic motive. It's a selfish motive. Yeah. And you say, why has he been quiet on this? And the answer is, I suspect because he thought it would hurt him financially, which he's going to need. Do not be hurt financially because if he doesn't start paying these lawyers, they're going to work for it. Right. But he, nothing he ever does has any patriotic or altruistic motive. It's always about him. And so mm -hmm. why has he been quiet on this? Good question. Yeah. And the Trump MO is once it's clear it's going to pass, then they, then they blast it because uh, right. that's what he does. Um, the final question is from New York City. We're not discriminating against the big urban areas. This is from Brian, who said, James, you're going to love this question, as I do, too. Why is taxing millionaires and billionaires unfavorable? I read 9% of U.S. adults are, are millionaires, so requiring them to pay just 5000 more per year needs $100 million in extra revenue. Shouldn't that be easy? So... I, maybe the most popular thing in Poland, or, or certainly the top five, are taxing millionaires or billionaires. Uh, there's no politically, it's enormously popular. And what they do is they have convinced people that it's political part. And if you, if you look at this dead deal, they could have fixed this thing. Like, like you would not believe by by increasing tax that you can't increase any taxes on anything, and 
boy, is that not only is not a political downside, there's every political upside to doing this. And be, I mean, it, that, that's a 73, 74% issue every time, yep. you, every time you poll it. And but boy, they get in and, and, you know, the problem is they hire, and I'm just going to say it right now, every time they come in, they hire all these Democratic lobbyists, the financial services roundtable, all these people, and, and it's the Democratic lobbyists that kill it. If, if, if the next president, Democratic president, I don't care if it's, you know, if Biden probably won't do it, is any Democratic firm that works to undermine a, a, a tax raise on the wealthy will be persona non grata in the White House or anywhere else and name their goddamn names. Well, I name their names. I couldn't agree with you more, but my profession bears a big responsibility for that. We ought to be out there every time there's a bill up there and we have not done that. You know, we'll do a story on some, you know, hotshot lobbyists. But I want to know there were people on the on the um, uh, carried interest. There were people who had worked for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were that now lobbyists who were trying to help carry interest. It's the most inexcusable freaking thing in the world that that you tax a a, some a a hedge fund substantially less than than a, a corporal in the fucking Marine Corps, which is outrageous. Right. Outrageous. And you know what the Republicans will say, James. They'll say this is not the time to increase taxes. So I just want to ask them, when is the time <laughs> is to the increase time? taxes? <laughs> when is the time? Okay. Yeah. If, if it's good times, you can't. I mean, it's all the same. Bought right. for, paid for. But these people know how greedy Washington is, and they exploit it to the nth degree. Brian, good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, for any of you whose questions we didn't get to this week, send them in again. We'll get to them next week. There are more really great questions that we can possibly get to. So thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to the sponsors in our recent show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another program as we continue our war room planning.